Now, if you have your Bibles with you, please, we're looking at Luke's Gospel. There's the page in the Church Bibles, Luke chapter 9, verse uh, 28. We're breaking into this uh, dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. About eight days, this is, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter... John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. What he had said previously was, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And this is a continuation of that discipleship challenge. As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses And Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring about in the fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving... Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, in that order. Brackets. Didn't know what he was talking about. Verse 34. While he was still speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid As they entered the cloud, a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. Later on, you'll know that Peter reflects on that in his uh, letter to the churches. We're pursuing a series in Luke chapter 9, and we've come to this section now that's called the Transfiguration. I was thinking about this and uh, put a question to you. If you were me, and you were to preach a sermon or give a talk about uh, the Transfiguration, what would you do? Where would you start? Where would you look? So I looked in my uh, biblical dictionary of studies. Listen to this. This is what it says. It's a good start. Um, Transfiguration. An event recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels, in which Jesus' appearance underwent a metamorphosis. That is, to be changed in form or transformed Within. In the gospel accounts of the transfiguration, Elijah and Moses conversed with Jesus and his clothing became dazzling white. And God's voice was heard in the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Well, there you are. And I thought that would be good. We could have our closing hymn and go home. That did come across, and I know you'd be so disappointed if that was to happen. 
There you are, it's a concise definition of transfiguration. Saying what it is, is one thing. Reading what it is, is one thing. Saying how it applies to us today, that one-off historic event, is quite another. The three disciples, James, John, and Peter, were afraid. They were fearful. I guess one of the most paralyzing problems in all of life is fear. Now, one of the things we'll be discussing on Thursday, I I grant you, is there is a healthy fear and an unhealthy one. I'm thinking about the latter. Fear of sickness. The fear of the unknown. The fear of growing old. The fear of people and public opinion. The fear of rejection or disease. The fear of losing your job or the fear of retirement or the fear of the future, the fear of dementia, as perhaps we have struggled with elderly parents. And what compounds these fears, and I guess you have others that you can think about, is that often a strange thing that the fears that we anticipate often incur. It's almost a form of self-inducement. You have to be careful. It can be a form of paranoia, fear. And often in life, there's a a, a fear of involvement, a fear of commitment. That is certainly the way that the majority of people would be today. And as society gets more and more secular, the less involved people are with each other. Well, so much then for... Um, this context of the disciples being afraid. And essentially here, it's afraid of the unknown. One of the things that held me back from committing my life to Jesus Christ was this. what, What will it mean? How will it work out? What will people say? The fear of that can hold people back. What I want us to pursue this morning in this transfiguration is not so much what it says, because we've given a definition for what it's worth, but what it means and how it applies. So this is one of these, if you like, application sermons. The sermon that perhaps can, one of these application sermons, make us more uncomfortable rather than more informed. I hope that is the case for all of us. But it's the application for us in our ordinary lives, for ordinary believers, if there is such a thing. Because by definition, are there extraordinary believers? I don't think so. And yet we're talking about change, a change of appearance, if you like, that comes from within. This, what is called a a spiritual metamorphosis. For Jesus, he now is the missing piece in this jigsaw of the way the Bible comes together. You have Moses, the law. You have this charismatic prophet with chariots of fire encountering the prophets of Baal, almost abolishing idolatry in the life of Israel, the prophet. And the missing link, the missing part in the jigsaw, Jesus, who now comes to fulfill the law and the prophets 
and introduce his kingdom with power. And in a way, the transfiguration is very much linked to that. Here is one thing that I hadn't noticed before. Whatever you think about the transfiguration thus far, the one thing, the central topic that preoccupied Moses, Elijah and Jesus while the disciples were sleeping is how very strange Jesus' impending death. It's often a strange chord that runs through the Gospels. You, you look at verse 31, for example, of the reading. Uh, the two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. The crucifixion, the cross, and its imperative for Jesus. Now, it's a strange thing, of course, Moses and Elijah had died, and the whole issue about the future and the past, we live in time, and the ravages of time take their toll upon us. This is outside of that, and I grant you there's an element of mystery. Nevertheless, the topic of conversation, how strange is the death of Jesus? Why? Because it is a prelude to the greater glory of his kingdom. The disciples had no idea that when Jesus said to them in verse 27, I tell you the truth, some of you standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God. What was that? Is it the transfiguration? Is it this mighty crucifixion where death died? Where now you can say to a believer with absolute confidence, he or she who believes in me shall never die. Death died on the cross. That's a powerful vista of glory and kingdom. Or maybe it's the mighty resurrection or Pentecost where the kingdom is born and extends throughout the world even to this day. Well, it would be fascinating to know what they said the disciples had a wonderful opportunity, but they went to sleep. Life's a bit like that, isn't it? We miss the point. And we can do that even in church. Here's a prelude to a greater glory. And Jesus knew there was a crown beyond the cross. And you and I, in our personal taking up of the cross, if you lose sight of the crown and the glory, then life is going to be an awful grind for you. You lose sight of that. It's going to be difficult for you and the people with whom you live. The coming of his glory, which continues to grow and expand. One reference that we have, it's in the book of Hebrews, and there you have it there. And I just want us to uh, turn to this. Just the one, um, it's familiar to many of us, I guess. Hebrews 12, what, one, 1 and 2. Let me just read it to you and just think about it. This cloud of witnesses, who are they? Well, the people who've gone on before, if you like, and especially as you think about uh, Moses and Elijah. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud, that's what the disciples were surrounded by, and they were afraid. If you think of future life and beyond this life, 
what some people call the paranormal or out-of-body experience, that sort of thing. It's the unknown. It's, and even for true believers, there's a sense of fear. What's the reaction here? Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now then, think of the conversation between these two. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, in his conversation with Moses and Elijah and his impending kingdom through crucifixion, what? This Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is for us the incentive to keep going whatever our difficulties, whatever the fears that dog our steps throughout life. In other words, Christians have parallel experiences. Think of it like that. Um, the example here, the parallel experience Jesus was to take up his cross physically, wasn't he? Well, we are to take up a cross not in that physical sense. Here you have it in verse 23. It's a parallel experience. We're following him. And if we experience the joys that are unique to the Christian, why should we whinge when we experience the sorrows that are unique to the Christian? It's a parallel experience. And in verse 24, there's the sacrifice. And a strange apparent contradiction in verse 24 of Luke chapter 9. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me, for my sake, will save it. A parallel experience. And so from our reading, this unique Christian metamorphosis, often, of course, we ourselves are not aware of that, and if we are to pursue, and we were thinking about that, that song, Purify My Heart, as soon as you embark upon being really serious about being a Christian, you can have a problem, two problems at the very least. The first is this, what we can call now the external problem, an external problem which is our common enemy, the devil. Uh, I was looking at some books from the pastor. Would you believe it? This book cost three and six. How much is that? Uh, can you help me? Three and six. How much? Sorry? Seventeen and a half pence. Thank you. Seventeen and a half pence. Well, I'll lend this to you if you, if you want to. It, uh, it's uh, almost a collector's item. And it's the, the Screwtip Letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, the, the Radio 4 ran a series of this, of the dialogue uh, be, between uh, Screwtip, who is the senior devil, and Wormwood, who is his apprentice. And he's teaching him the schemes of how to trip up Christian people. And let me introduce you to the dialogue that C.S. Lewis presents to, between these two. Screwtip is the senior. Wormwood is the apprentice, the junior. They both have a common cause. They want to frustrate, trip up Christian people and oppose them. Listen to this. He Screwtip is speaking to Wormwood and he says, You will doubtless say that these are very small sins and 
Like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report some very spectacular wickedness. But do remember that the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Well, that's almost like a, a prophetic word, isn't it? We live at a time where there's no right or wrong. It's you are who you are. You do what you want to do. And we'll betide anybody who should even challenge you, even as a believer. So it poses the question, is there something in our lives that is distracting us from keeping our eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus, inching us away from the light, little by little by little, until it erodes our relationship, that actually we are no different to anybody else. It could be an unhealthy relationship, couldn't it? It could be a preoccupation with ourselves, where we're constantly turning in on ourselves and have no time for anybody else. I was uh, spraying my... uh, Autumn, sweet peas, two days ago, seeing the leaves turning in. And it's a sure sign they're under attack by white fly and green flies. And when we turn in on ourselves, we are not at our best. But when we are willing to share our lives with other people, even if it's for an ulterior motive, we are enriched. And sometimes that's the devil's work, keeping us busy, not necessarily with bad things, but with lesser things. And even spiritual things themselves can be a hindrance. You see it. So there you are. This potential spiritual metamorphosis and we have a problem. The devil who's constantly trying to trip us up. But there's a second problem as well. And that's an internal one. And it's ourselves. It's no good blaming the devil when we are doing things wrong. Not that this pulpit is a place to defend him. Some people do that. Some people blame the devil for everything. Other people blame themselves for everything. And there may be a temperamental thing there. Nevertheless, these two things are big issues. And what comes out here, and I'm now going to focus on Peter for the rest of the sermon. What comes out here when we think about this internal problem, and we, we can't say everything, we can say this. The biggest problem is ourselves. My problem is me, your problem is you. In varying degrees. Now you shouldn't go home and beat yourself up. But that is true. It's exacerbated by circumstances. By uh, experiences. By sorrows. By all those factors. Nevertheless. How do we cope with ourselves? I got this. And it's in the the notes for for the home group. And it seems almost an anticlimax. But I don't think it is. And it's a quotation from Bonhoeffer, who had plenty of time to reflect during his uh, prison uh, experience. And he says this about his fellow pastors in the Lutheran church. So this is uh, uh, something unique to people like me who speak and so on. Listen to this quotation. Christians, especially ministers, 
so often think that they must always contribute something when they're in the company of others. Can be a habit, a bad habit. Uh, Peter was like that. I'm a little like that, but you've noticed, I'm sure. Okay. This is Bonhoeffer. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. What does our Heavenly Father say through the cloud? This is Jesus. Listen to him. Peter's not listening. Let's build something here. When the whole of Palestine is, is festooned with relics and buildings, if there isn't enough. The important thing, listening, can be of greater service than speaking. You remember St. Augustine, that famous quote when he was sending out his disciples, said, go out into the world. And preach Christ. Wherever you go, preach Christ. Whoever you see, preach Christ. And where necessary, use words. We live in an information overload society, clearly. And this spiritual metamorphosis for us could be I want to listen to what Jesus says. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He has something to say to you. Let's just look as we try to conclude two mistakes in this passage that we're going to highlight. Peter's first mistake in verse 33 is this. And how, how typical this is of us as well as him. Uh, there you have it in verse 33. Lord, it, it's good for us to be here. It's not good for him at all. This isn't about him. And sometimes, you know, you need to get out of the way. Christian life is, you think, you know, it's all about me. And some services can almost encourage that. It's good for us to be here. It's, you know, we can miss the point, can't we? Making him and others central in this experience when at best they should be peripheral. It's not about him. It is about Jesus. This is my son. Listen to him. He is central. And John the Baptist learned that as he launched the kingdom when said about Jesus, here he is. Here he is. He must increase. I must decrease. He's everything. I'm nothing. Think he's asked me to come and baptize him. I shouldn't even wash his feet or take his sandals off. We are not central. I'm sorry to say that. He is. And he is everything. And if we are anything at all, it is because of him. It is because of him. He should have said, it is good that you are here, Jesus. Not it's good that we are here. And sometimes, churches, we can miss the point, can't we? We can miss the point. You see... However wonderful this experience was, and I'm sure it was quite remarkable, it was never repeated, is that it didn't, it didn't really help Peter when he went down the valley, did it? And it won't help you tomorrow morning. It's not whatever 
our experience, charismatic, quiet, noisy, or whatever. And God willing, we should have those. They are not enough or sufficient in themselves to sustain a Christian and godly life at work and home and in the community. They are not. Then what is? That we stay focused on Jesus and we stay fed upon his word. If we can do those two things, then whatever our experience is, or the lack of them, we will be able to sustain to some degree a close relationship with God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever the highs and lows. That's the first mistake. And, and quickly, the second mistake is this. You see it also in verse 33. It's a danger of, of making permanent that which is a passing experience. You know, church history is, 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 is full of examples where people have had great experiences and they've built the church on experience. It's lasted for a while and then it's petered out. But what will make surely a church stand solid is this, that it's about him. That it's a church focused on Jesus and that takes his word seriously. And we are prepared to take up our cross, whatever the cost. And we're not going to be pragmatic about it. The truth is, we are a pilgrim people. And I know some people emotionally and, and morally and so on have just got stuck along the way. Or there's a doctrinal hurdle, or they're backward. They just can't overcome, and they, they get stuck. And yet we are a pilgrim people. We're on a journey. And this is the point. Shelters, booths, shrines, religious relics can, not always, but can be a distraction. We are not to interpret how people think, but there's a danger almost you could worship the building. That is why, not just in Long Crendon Baptist Church, in other churches where God's blessing, and the biggest problem is that people see the building and say, can't possibly change that. This has been here for a thousand years. And if you were to be unkind, you think, are they actually worshipping the building or in the building? We can get stuck with good things. We can and the mistake is that we are on a journey together. And the real challenge, and this is the point, the real challenge isn't today, it's tomorrow. It's this week, it's the, it's, yeah, the, the mountaintop and the valleys. How do you cope in the valley in those dark times when you feel you're on your own? When life has dealt you difficult and painful experiences. This, I don't want to encroach upon the next part, but clearly, you see in verse 37, the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Here is a family gripped with sorrow and frustration. How are you going to cope? I have a nephew who has a, a son who is severely, severely autistic. In, since he's been born, they've hardly had a night without, uh, without, uh, with a broken sleep. And the older he gets, the problem gets greater. And you think, how can you help in that situation where the problem is growing physically, emotionally, in front of their eyes? 
Here's a situation. And we have to face these. Coming down from the mountain. And only as we listen to Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, will we be able to have a word in season that will help people in difficult and painful situations. Or we just say, well, it's just bad luck. Touch wood and keep your fingers crossed. It's not very helpful, is it? But if there is this metamorphosis, this change taking place, this is my son, listen to him and take him down the valley with you. Take him with you and take him into that impasse. Take him into that difficult situation. We will have a word in season on those occasions, even if we don't realize it. So let's try to conclude. What can we say? Listen to him. That's what our Heavenly Father would say to us about Jesus. Listen to him and stay awake. Stay awake. The disciples were sleeping. Listen to him and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You have that in verse 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And the clouds that you are going to enter this week, whatever they are, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him and be, don't be distracted. It's good for us. Let's do this. Let's build our mini empires and say how good we are. No. Listen to him and don't be distracted. Listen to him and avoid this self-centered argument. Would you believe it? They have this remarkable experience. And you see in verse 46, an argument started among the disciples. How could they do that? And what was the argument? Who's going to be the greatest? Nothing original about that at all, is there? In a world where everybody's jockeying for position. If you have this metamorphosis, then you listen to him and avoid being distracted by such things. This is my son, whom I love. God still says to us, listen to him. Listen to him. Well, let's have a moment of prayer together. And in these uh, brief and closing moments together with all the noise and the distractions around and within and without come Holy Spirit and help us to listen to Jesus once more and banish fear and bring trust and fresh hope 
And Lord, we pray that for some of us as we enter the cloud where we might be afraid, help us to say those clouds we so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessing on our heads. So Lord, today hear all our unspoken prayers. For the glory of your name. Amen.